Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, very excited today. I'm here with Rafe Kelly. Uh, some of you know may know Rafe. He uh, hung out with John. He's a member of the Respond crew, which talked uh, about, which we did in Consilience. In fact, I went to a Respond meeting in France a little long, a while ago, so we share that. Uh, Rafe is a pioneer uh, in parkour uh, and philosophy. I'll, I'll see. I'll throw that word out there and see what you pick up. Uh, and generated the Evolve Move Play uh, element. I just spent about uh, 10 minutes watching Rafe race through the woods uh, mm. in a way that kind of scared the crap out of me. And I look forward to talking with him about how he does that uh, and what it means. Uh, I saw the tree and kids playing around it reminded me a little of the you talk tree of life. Uh, and I'm super excited to hear uh, from you, Rafe, and how you embody uh, natural wisdom uh, and can share that with us today. Welcome so much to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, Greg. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm very interested in diving deeper into the Utah model. Um, so I think this is uh, hopefully the first of many conversations and yeah, should be very generative. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, we had a really fun half an hour or so or our conversation a little while ago and immediately there's a lot of synergy. Um, so I think, you know, I'm a clinician, so uh, I'm big into human story, how they kind of get to where they are. Uh, I'd love to just get a little, have our audience get a little bit of your background and uh, how you uh, grew into uh, what would ultimately become uh, evolve move play or or however you kind of frame your your work these days yeah maybe since you're a clinician i'll start the story kind of further back and talk a little bit about the family history okay my, my great-grandfather stanislaus janowski came from poland mm. and settled here in uh, northwest washington scattered county set up a cedar mill <laughs> and uh, a shake mill became you know very wealthy and passed mm. it on to his kids so that land the original homestead was passed to my grandmother and then my dad inherited it so my dad kind of grew up as like a conservative football playing you know all-state wrestler all right uh, super athlete um and you know with a lot of family who are loggers a lot of family are engineers and mm -hmm. he uh went to school as an architect okay and uh you know Late 60s, early 70s, he dropped acid and hmm. came back as Sun Ray Kelly, this, uh, you know, visionary hmm. natural builder. And he started building buildings based off of like Norse churches and, you know, wow. buildings and pagodas and stuff like that. Um, and he became a leader in a lot of ways of the counterculture in our area. And, uh, and his work has been featured, you know, um, uh, around the world as like one of the leading natural builders who brought Cobb building to the United oh. States uh, along with a man named Giannis from uh, from Wales and so I grew up you know at the end of this dirt road in this kind of like liminal counterculture space okay by works of art that are really remarkable um, my dad unfortunately passed away actually on the first day of return to the source this year well I'm sorry to hear that which was an, an intense and interesting passage, but uh, mm. he was actually featured. Uh, his obituary was featured in the Economist and the New York Times, talking about his building, which was wow. Kind of, um, I, I didn't. I knew he was quite prominent, but I didn't quite get the. It was that level. That's like that's a good marker, right? <laughs> yeah. So I had a unique upbringing, right? Um, my dad had struggled with ADHD and dyslexia, uh, mm. and then when I started school, I had the same sort of symptoms. Mm. And that, along with, you know, tensions around 
the counterculture. My dad wanted to be able to sell marijuana to make money. My mom wasn't interested in that supporting the family. She wanted to go back to work. He didn't want her to go back to work. Hmm. Um, it all kind of, um, it, uh, yeah, became, a you know, a, a point of conflict. So starting around first, second grade, my dad kind of pulled back from me emotionally. Okay. And hmm. I, I ended up having a mentor who came into my life um, and took me out of school and I was homeschooled and, hmm. you know, spent lots of hours rough and tumble playing and running around in the woods okay. and saw that that could, that, that was very healing for me. And hmm. also through the influence of, uh, of epic literature, I got really into the Lord of the Rings. Ah, so okay. that was uh, something that really helped me develop a deep desire to self-educate and to learn and to pursue the world. And so from the Lord of the Rings, I went into uh, the Norse mythology and Greek mythology, and then that attracted me to anthropology. So by the time I was, you know, 12 years old, I was reading all the anthropology books in the local library. Wow. Interesting. 14, I'd read them all. And okay. I mentored uh, a local, uh, a local, me, you know, anthropology major who had a big library of ethnographies. So I, I read like 20 ethnographies huh. before I started community college when I was 16. So Man, I like showed that. anthropology ah. class and like, you know, the guys were like, what are we going to do with this weird kid from the mountain who knows way too much anthropology already for a 101 class? Um, That's yeah, lovely. So they, I, I get, I'll throw it aside out there. I have a very uh, interesting relationship with the field of anthropology, given my uh, <laughs> role as a human psychologist. There's a fascinating relationship between those two disciplines. Yeah, yeah. View. So anyway, that's lovely. Great. So I apologize. I need to, to take one moment to uh, turn my phone off because I'm going to get pinged otherwise. <laughs> Please do. No worries. Absolutely. I tried to do that beforehand, but somehow got lost. Okay. Good to go. Um. So, yeah, so I had, you know, this kind of exceptionally idyllic, you know, beautiful childhood with extraordinary freedom that was also riven with conflict and mm. neglect and, mm -hmm. you know, the chaos of the counterculture. Mm. And my response to that was to, first, I like, I started fighting a lot in school. Like I got in fights, I, you know, uh, I hurt some other kids and it was not a good situation. And so my parents put me in martial arts and I was able to start learning discipline through Teng Soo Do and then Aikido and then Kung Fu. Hmm. And then I got all this rough and tumble play from my mentor and my dad before that and off and on during that. Um, okay. It was really healing for me. And so when I was 12, 13, I started like being asked to watch other people's kids hmm. and hmm. I would roughhouse with them and I could just see how much it was meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. and, and mm. just felt like so was, this is this is inside of you from a young age this fundamental yeah. sense yeah yeah i could just it felt like there's this huge hunger in young children to have adults who are willing to play with them and to really play with them in intense physical ways and to be strong enough to to throw them in the air and to trust them right and so that was that was big and um and there was some, there was this attraction to the heroic, you know, I wanted to be Aragorn when I was a kid. Mm. Um, and I remember being like, like 12 years old, like realizing there's no orcs or dragons out there. And then I wanted to become a fantasy novelist at first. Mm. Uh, and then I wanted to become a field anthropologist. That's kind of a heroic idea. Okay. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, 
but I remember when I was 15, I watched the Olympics, right? The 96 Olympics and okay. or 14, I guess. Um, and I saw, you know, Carrie Strug, uh, and, you know, uh-huh. uh, for folks who don't know, Carrie Strug was an American gymnast who, yep. uh, sprained her ankle really badly on a vault. And I remember that vault. <laughs> I saw it. The Americans were, were poised to win and mm-hmm. were supposed to win. They were the dream team. And their chances to win were were flying away because a bunch of them had bad vaults, which was really unexpected. And so she had to land this vault in order to save the dream team's gold chances. And she did on a broken ankle. Yeah. And that was, uh, you know, there was something so heroic about that. It was really inspiring to me. So I started training gymnastics when I was 15. Mm. And then I saw the first UFC around that time as well. Started training jujitsu and Muay Thai. Um and kind of have always been in physical practice ever since then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, in parallel to pursuing a, a, well, as I was pursuing my degree in anthropology, I discover I got hired to teach gymnastics and realized I just loved coaching, loved mm-hmm. working on that level and eventually became really disillusioned with the postmodern turn in mm-hmm. it in anthropology ended up quitting my anthropology degree with mm-hmm. it does show up in anthropology some doesn't it oh, yeah. <laughs> that's um, my understatement yeah yeah <laughs> um so I, I quit actually my anthropology degree with three classes left to finish my degree because i had fallen in love with coaching and because i just couldn't hack the postmodern approach and um and off i went into coaching and then a couple of years into coaching i discovered parkour i was one of the first generation of parkour athletes and for me seeing the first parkour athletes david bell jumping from building to building it was like it was kind of like next layer of that heroic thing that i saw in carrie strug right right it was like this all this okay there's no dra- there's dragons inside you could just that way to go fight them to create the character that you would want to become through the of, of confronting something really challenging um i think we lost you this or a sec but i i i think we have the um but you said something about dragons and then that you were really yeah. going to confront this in reality in a in a particular way and then <laughs> we, we lost a little bit of with the internet connection yeah um i can repeat it i just when i saw like the, this video of david bell and you see him for the first time like jump between two buildings um i don't remember remember like i'm not sure if this memory is like me sort of back editing mm-hmm. well based on things that i know now probably some but still go ahead it can be meaningful. <laughs> yeah but i have this sense that like that I, that I saw that and it was as if someone had said to me like okay there's no dragons out there you can't go be bilbo right confronting the dragon that way or siegfried but there's dragons inside you your own fear your own inadequacy your own mental hang-ups and if you go and you jump, that's a way of confronting them in the most intense way that you can. And that's how you start to build a heroic character. And you, you could see it in gymnastics, but going out into the to the urban world at that stage and doing it in an environment that wasn't designed for it and wasn't full of mats, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about competing and being in the Olympics. It was just about your own journey. Right. That felt more, more profound. It was like, you know... Gymnastics is the kind of shadow on the wall cast by the son of parkour, right? Yeah. Mm. That that was kind of how I felt at Love the time. It. 
I, I just had a real basic question here. How do you guys do that? <laughs> and I, I let me mean I'll be a little more. I mean, I'm being flippant in some ways and in awe. I'm in awe of that. Um, but I'm also really curious. It's so spontaneous and also it sometimes feels so high risk, at least for those of us that are watching. Um, I'd just like to hear a little bit of reflection about how how you navigate those dragons and and somehow manage the risk appropriately in a way that feels I don't know, at least within the bounds of sanity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really the same as any any educational process, right? Okay. Uh -huh. you're, you're working towards incremental progression, working within the zone of proximal development. Lovely. So we don't start by jumping 60 feet off the ground. We start by doing jumps that are on the ground. And when we start approaching heights, it's, you know, the first time that you jump, between two things that are three feet off the ground it's terrifying hmm. right because it's still different it's still different enough from doing the same jump on the ground and you can bounce off in a weird way or you can catch your ankles on the edge of it and and so you experience fear okay. and you learn to jump and have attunement to what it's like have some in below you okay. and then over time you'll learn how to recognize how your body behaves in those kind of circumstances what are the things that you need to control mm -hmm. so if you've done hundreds of thousands of jumps that are you know two feet off the ground four feet off the ground five feet six feet off the ground and you've bounced off and bounced forward and slipped and slid out and fell down where you're not going to get hurt mm -hmm. like you get to have like a really really strong sense of something that you can do and that you know you absolutely will not fail nice it's only when you really can jump with that kind of confidence that you can approach the heights so i'll do a jump at the ground level that there's an 80 percent chance that i'll bounce off of mm. and because there's no consequence to it but if i'm if i'm doing a jump that's 30 feet off the ground like i have to feel like if i lined it up a thousand times i wouldn't fail any of them and so that's a it's a that it's a sense. sensitivity and attunement that comes over time mm -hmm. uh with practice and just like you know you wouldn't take you know i think a lot of times people see parkour and they they can't it's as if they've seen people who lift like 100 pounds in a squat and people who lifted a 600 pounds in the squat and they don't know how to add micro plates to get from here to there that's a good analogy. I love that. Yep. That's, so, right. I was a hundred pound squatter watching <laughs> you do 600 and going, damn. Yeah. Like, well, you, you, there's a lot of things that go into the process of getting there, but it's a process like anything else. And right. if it's done well, then you can get there securely. Lovely. Okay. So you become a intense parkour uh, coach and leader. Um, yeah. And yeah. this is and this is a philosophy. Tell me, I'm really so interested in the philosophy. Your shift away from anthropology mm -hmm. is this? Are you are you not only embodying this at the time? Are you basically like I'm on to something profound? I'm curious as to when that. Uh, how long is that thread inside of you? When yeah. does it really become uh, a part but, of your story? There's a so when I started parkour, one of the parkour inspired battle arts had been out of martial arts practice consistently for a couple of years like i was still you know when i found a like a little club jujitsu club at my university or a boxing club at my university i'd go and do it but it was inconsistent right mm -hmm. so when i started parkour it may have been 
like half a year or something since I really had any regular martial arts practice. And I went and started my martial arts practice. There was something about core that felt like it was this entry to the, to a heroic education. Hmm. And, and it felt like that needed the martial arts as well for me. Mm-hmm. And so there was two, like I had, I had anthropological and mythological touchstones to the way that I was to what was happening within me when I approached parkour right away. So um, if you read particularly Irish mythology, Celtic mythology, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's in many of these different mythologies, but Celtic mythology has really exaggerated, like Marvel hero Mm -hmm. type parkour action. (laughs) Uh, So there was a, there's two major there's three major mythological cycles in the irish mythology there's the uh the i think um can't remember the name of, of this it's the book of invasions it's the story of how all, all that is in to ireland so it starts with the the first battle of moitura between the phone uh between the fearbolg and the twitadon and the twitadon are sort of the the main tribe of irish gods mm-hmm. and then you have the uh the Tambukuni or the Ulster cycle, which mm. is around Cúchulainn, who's sort of the Hercules of Irish myth, and then you have the Fenian cycle, and the Fenian cycle uh, is about Finn McCool, and he was part of this band of sort of roving warriors that protected Ireland, uh, but weren't were not part of any one clan, mm-hmm. and so there's this description of how the Fenian how how to qualify to become a a, a Fianna, okay, and in order to become one of the Fianna, you had to run through the woods at top speed while being chased by people with spears. <laughs> you had to do this barefoot and be able to pluck a thorn from your foot while you were running without uh, breaking stride, be able to pass under an obstacle as low as your knee and over one as high as your shoulders without breaking stride. Oh, good Lord. And do all this without any hairs coming loose from your braids. It's like this is a description of parkour, right? Huh. And um, and then they like bury you up to your waist in a in a pit, and you'd have to like knock down spears with a hazel wand. <laughs> um, and so then there's a, one of the most famous stories in that is the story of the pursuit of German Grania. Basically, Finn has now gotten old. He's lost his wife. He wants a new wife. He's going to marry the young daughter of the king. She's like, I don't want to marry an old man. She casts a spell on one of his warriors to take her away and elope with her, basically. Okay. So they're they're pursuing this hero, Jermit, who's one of the like greatest warriors of the Fianna. Hmm. And so it says all the time, like he like jumps up into a tree with an exceedingly light leap. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the big scenes is there ends this me after Jermit. And Dermot like disguises himself and goes to meet the army. And they're like, have you seen this guy, Dermot Yudovna? And he says, I, oh yeah, I saw him yesterday. He did this feat that's unlike any, I've never seen anybody else achieve this feat. Like, oh. do you guys, and, and they're like, oh yeah, well, we could do it. He's like, well, let me show you. And so he takes an empty barrel of wine and rides it down a rocky cliff while standing on it with his feet. Oh. And then 10,000 soldiers from the army try and kill themselves by the end of the day. <laughs> And the next day he comes back and they're like, have you seen Dermot Yudubin? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I saw him. He showed me this other feat. It's really amazing. He ran up a spear and stood on its point. So then 10,000 of their soldiers run up the spear and <laughs> kill themselves. <Get> impaled. 
Hmm. And then the next day, he he sets up a feat where he jumps and lands in between two sword blades. It's like these are like these were like images that I had in my head uh, when I talk about Kuhu and they talk about the salmon leap. Hmm. Right, he could leap over walls like a salmon in order to attack uh, uh, attack an enemy stronghold. Um, and it was like, wow, this this idea of feats of being capable of acrobatics, of being capable of of um, of jumping and running, that was part of the heroic conception of these characters. And you can find similar things in the Norse myths and the Norse sagas, and mm. you know, all around. And 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 so I I, I saw myself as entering that when I mm-hmm. when I did that. And I was also inspired by reading by like little passages about play that I'd read in various ethnogra- ethnographic literature so the um i think it's in the forest people by colin turnbull he talks about the play of the mbuti pygmy mm-hmm. and how they would um they would climb up trees and bend them over mm-hmm. and jump off and let somebody mm-hmm. ride a tree up to uh, the top turns out my dad actually so he's a kid with his bro- huh. brother um, they would take liana vines and swing them around and the kids would do acrobatics off the liana vines Wow. I think it was the two people in Northern Australia. They said like they live in these very flat arid environments. They'd be walking and walking and walking and just nothing but flat for ages. And they'd see a big rock or a big tree and all the kids to it and immediately start climbing it and jumping and jumping off of it and flipping. Right. And wow. I was like, this is something so in me in the way that I was thinking about and approaching parkour from the beginning. Huh. Um, so there was an anthropological, mythological, maybe incipient and, and parkour in the beginning, parkour was talked about as a philosophy, right? Mm. It was like parkour philosophy. Mm. It wasn't just jump. Okay. It was a philosophy behind it, but, um, it was very hard to, the, the founders of parkour were all French speakers speak any other language, mm-hmm. like kids who had dropped out of school. Hmm. especially as an english speaker so it was hard to really what they were talking about their philosophy but for the people who are like in, in trying or in right race can i just i'm going to pause this for a second uh okay cool. where were we so you were telling me about the um I don't know if I'll get the tribe, but I was super flat and they would come across rocks and start jumping. Oh, um, yeah, the Tui people. Mm-hmm. I, I actually don't know for sure there's the Tui. It was like literally ethnographies that I read when I was 14 years old. Right, like, okay. Um, but I, it was a tribe from Northern Australia. Okay. Um, and so I had read these passages about play in other cultures and I saw that parkour participated in that same basic structure of play. Right, that, seem to be universal in children around the world. Um, actually, my wife would go on to do a master's in anthropology that she did on the subject of parkour as a form of adult play. Oh, huh, really? She went all the way down into the primatology literature and found that like this stuff is documented in macaques where they will repeat repeat the same routes of jump, climb, you know, run over and over again as a way of mapping as part of their play so locomotor play i mean the the, the, the play, literature on play just has the, the term locomotor play right mm-hmm. and it's something you see really in almost all animals that play with their capacity to locomote to an environment um and fundamentally that's what i think parkour is it's just a a defined 
cultural specifically cultural approach to locomotor play but it's unique relative to gymnastics which you could say is the same thing Mm -hmm. because it's much more like the fundamental thing that we find everywhere and that all children express Mm. yeah so we have Mm. this anthropological approach this uh this mythological frame and then from the beginning uh the parkour community had this idea of a parkour philosophy and there was a big subject of discussion on online parkour forums Hmm. but i never felt satisfied by the way that it was described it always felt like it was very important to people but nobody could tell me what it was Hmm. and i think that that was in part because it was really an embodied philosophy it was like there was a specific culture that arose within this group of people who who came together and the you know the 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 founders of parkour were mostly from immigrant communities uh-huh. and lower income communities in the banlieues of paris right okay. so they're literally like brutalist housing projects uh-huh. in and um lease in france that give rise to parkour interesting um and so these kids they were a lot of them were traumatized in various ways right like so um david bell who's the his father had become separated from his family during the franco-vietnamese war Uh and he'd become a child soldier in that war Uh and over to after the war because his family was like a a francophized family mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my stable um yeah. somewhat <laughs> but good enough I, it's following mm-hmm. yeah you're you're smooth for me so, okay good but, um, yeah so so raymond bell david's father had had come from that and then he'd come to france and become a celebrated athlete and military firefighter mm-hmm. but david was was the son of his mistress and was raised separately from his dad. Okay. And then he spent time with his his cousins who were raised by by one of Raymond's cousins who had had a totally separate experience of the Franco-Vietnamese War, but it also had the super military discipline, deep martial arts, like super hard mm-hmm. pushing this on his kids. And then it all kind of started to really catalyzed when david met a man named jan hanatra who came from a new caledonian family that literally had come from headhunters a couple generations ago okay (laughs) david and jan almost got into a fist fight when they first met Uh and they went out and they started pushing each other they started practicing martial arts together and a lot of it originally was just calisthenics challenges it was just doing lots of push-ups lots of squats trying Mm -hmm. to lift things that they found Hmm. but one of the ways they challenged themselves was jumping over things and jumping between things and when they did that they discovered this kind of edge space Hmm. that other people were doing so you know you could find lots of people who did martial arts you could find lots of people who were doing calisthenics but they were doing these jumps Uh and there was nobody who could do the jumps like they were doing them Uh they could the only person who was like an inspiration was jackie chan okay Uh and i think that what happened was they were really seeking an identity that was stable, right? right. Because they're, you know, New Caledonian, half, half Vietnamese, unstable families, all these things. Mm-hmm. They're seeking an identity to catalyze, you know, mm-hmm. in this messianic aspect of, mm-hmm. of adolescent development. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to become strong. They wanted to have a way to 
test their care. Mm. So I found that in these jumps mm-hmm. and the other practices that were associated with it. And I think that there was a, a, a philosophical element that was embodied in the culture that they created together. That gotcha. then parkour got popularized around the world. We saw the movements and we didn't see the motivations. Mm. We didn't see the identity that was felt by the people who were part of that original community. Right. And so this tension between, hey, it's cool that the people are following in our footsteps, but they really don't understand what we're doing. Mm. Uh, mm. They couldn't describe what the philosophy was, but they could see that there was a gap between how what, what in their part of possible and people mimicking the movements. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I think if you take on the practice and you you commit to it deeply, it has an inherent philosophical direction uh-huh. that body. But uh-huh. it really helps to have philosophical tools to then comprehend what you're doing and to be clear about it so that you're not seduced by just what is the most popular on YouTube? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Mm. Ads. And so interestingly, when I encountered Jordan Peterson's work, mm-hmm. this idea of, um, you know, we fundamentally go through life in a state of like a imperfect present that's oriented towards an aspira- aspirational huh? ideal for running through these little frames and then the root is that anomalous things are always going to happen. Yep. And you got a type of person who can take them on. Yes. And that's the archetype of the man. It was, it's a way of physically embodying that principle. Mm. Um, in some ways, I, I would say it is maybe the most profound study of fear because you you can sit in front of a really scary jump and and you have to in order to do it safely you have to come to grips with your fear mm-hmm. uh, mm. you can't rely on reactivity in the same way that you can in the martial arts right mm-hmm. like when someone punches you like other things take over mm. <laughs> so yeah there's you're walking into the ring but like a parkour athlete in some sense can do the walk-in mm. 30 times in a session wow and so that's why I think it's such a profound teacher mm-hmm. for the, this kind of specific way of dealing with uh, cultivating mm-hmm. courage. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how you relate to fear that way? And and what what is your cultivating attitude in relation? Do you, do you have a, a mindset, a way of doing that? Do you simply observe what unfolds? What can you share a little bit about that? Well, the first thing that came for me was the idea that fearlessness is not the goal, Okay. right? That we are we are not attempting to become fearless. What we're attempting to do is to become good friends with fear, uh-huh. right? So we have a well-negotiated relationship. So you don't want to kind of be locked down by your fear, but you want enough fear to sharpen you and cause you to pay deep attention. Uh-huh. So when you when you go and you face a jump, you are you, you're going to have fear rise if it's a really challenging jump, and then you you can practice a visualization, right? What's going to happen if I bounce off? Hmm. 
So you can do positive or negative visualization. So okay. you can just imagine yourself doing a jump over and over and over again until you feel like it's there, right? Mm -hmm. Or you, you can say, if I bounced off, here's my safety strategies, okay. right? So sometimes you don't have any safety strategies. You just have to make the jump. <laughs> so then you just imagine making the jump, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you you have to kind of like go through the embodiment of what fear feels like in your body, right? Are your hands shaking, mm. right? Are you breathing really fast? Is your heart racing? Is your, do you have butterflies in your stomach? Is your stomach clenching? Yep. Right? And the, then we, we, we calm ourselves mm. before. So what you'll see a, a, a experienced parkour athlete do before a really challenging jump is they're going to breathe out a lot. Okay. And they'll shake shake their hands out and then they'll wipe their shoes, which is a functional thing. We need to make sure, sure that our shoes aren't dusty underneath because we mm, need to minimize it. Yep. But you'll notice that and like if we're doing something that involves our hands, we'll spit on our hands and rub them to get mm. better traction on the hands. Mm -hmm. But what you'll see is that we'll start doing these things even when they're not relevant at all. Mm because they're calming signals to the nervous system once you've done them enough times. Right. And so you get to go through this process over and over again of confronting something that's enough to stimulate fear. Mm -hmm. And then asking, do I actually need to be this afraid of it? Mm -hmm. Lovely. And then how can I manage my own nervous system such that I can calibrate my fear to the level that will um, get me dialed such that I can really do this jump, but not so much that it's overwhelming me. Right. So hmm. it's a, it's literally like a tuning of fear, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have like a little fear string. Yep. And you want that thing to be tuned right to play with everything else well. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really general principle, I would argue. You call that the emotional sweet spot. Yeah, fine tuning. Beautiful. That's, uh, that's something we talk about a, a lot in in our work. Or just uh, we talk about uh, we talk about these five fundamental relationships hmm. that we have with being, which is what are the relationship internal to yourself. So, what is your relationship with fear? Right. What is your relationship with anger? What is your relationship with lust? What is your relationship with frustration? Mm -hmm. um, what does that feel like in the body? And how do you manage yourself? Right. Like one of the big things is don't suppress it. <laughs> like you have to actually have the, the bandwidth to be open to the emotions that arise. Love but that. At the same time, you have to have a way to contain them. Mm. They don't overwhelm you. They don't mm. disintegrate you. Um, and then at the same time, what's the relationship between your shoulder and your hip, right? What's the structural mm. relationship with your body? And those are deeply interconnected. They're interwoven. Then well, how does that body-mind what is its relationship to the external world? And we can think of the external world as made up of a landscape, mm -hmm. a set of objects that we can manipulate mm -hmm. and, a, and other, other um, agents, mm -hmm. living agents, and then hyper agents, transcend mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. So you want to be, uh, you want to be basically, yeah, I think the best, the best analogy is you want to be tuning yourself better in those relationships nice and and then part of that of course is that the arena is always shifting mm -hmm. the proper attunement mm -hmm. is dependent on the task that you're trying to perform in the specific arena right are you mm -hmm. playing 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're playing heavy metal, mm. <laughs> right? You have a right. different structure for a specific to evoke a specific musical or to mm. evoke a specific emotion, right? Than if you're playing pop music. Mm. And so in the same way, like that capacity to tune your emotional state and your physical state in relationship to these fundamental physical relationships mm-hmm. is is vital towards you know relevance realization hey <laughs> i know that term yeah. <laughs> uh actually that gives me that's a nice little segue i was starting to beginning to uh, feel the urge to invite you to share a little bit about obviously I, I know you through john as i know lots of people through john um tell me a little bit about that your connection with him did he reach out to you you reach out to him how did that bridge emerge yeah i reached out to john so i had when i discovered so i discovered jordan peterson like most people on the joe rogan podcast right in 2016 and you know the political aspect what he's talking about was interesting to me but it was when he got into that that uh narrative model that i got really intrigued because at the time i was trying to understand why narrative was so powerful in coaching Mm. i could give people facts and figures Mm -hmm. to the end of the day and it wouldn't penetrate the way that a story would Mm -hmm. but what makes a good story Mm. yep how does narrative structure things so peterson was just this incredible the attractive source of wisdom in that area mm-hmm. and then i went deep into all of his lecture series and i met him at the begin- at the end of 2017 and we had a chance to potentially record a a, a podcast mm. and it fell through because my daughter was going to be born too close to the time right. that i that, that they were available to record right mm. subsequent to that he went on kathy newman exploded huh. went out of reach for me uh-huh. right uh-huh right right so Jordan then posted the, the beginning the first episode of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis on Twitter. Uh, and I had heard that there was this other guy from the U of T. There were two guys who were always voted the most profound professors. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was prepared that there was going to be this other person to come out of the U of T, maybe someday, who was going to have a similar mm-hmm. like, level of, you know, of profundity to mm-hmm. Peter's. Right. Um, so I jumped right into a making from a meeting crisis from episode one. And like, once I was seven episodes in, I was like, I know that there's going to be, that this is something special. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to miss my opportunity to talk to John. Like I missed my opportunity to talk to Jordan. Cause mm-hmm. if I had struck earlier, it would have worked. Right. Right. And so I reached out to John right away and he was super interested in talking to me once I, I laid it. I did. So, uh, I, you know. I consumed everything he put out up to that point mm-hmm. and thought very deeply about it and sat in my garden for like an hour and a half trying to mm-hmm. conceptualize how to have the right conversation with him. And so I, I I formed our first conversation around how Fight Club was uh, was a really exemplary narrative of the problem of the meaning crisis and wow. how or had arisen as a kind of Fight Club that was aspirationally oriented rather than nihilistic. Nice. And that was very intriguing to John. So afterwards, uh-huh. it was one of the best interviews that he'd done and uh-huh. that he wanted to stay in touch. So we've been talking to each other, you know, every couple of months ever since. Gotcha. Excellent. And then what, in terms of like, do you then see parkour and then maybe evolve, uh, move play 
as sort of a crucial aspect, a, a response to the meaning crisis in a particular way then? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been, it's been something that I've worked on for a long time because my intuition is that, uh, that, <laughs> um, for the most part, the philosophical approach is failing. Uh, the academic and intellectual approach is failing because of a lack of embodiment. And we we think that our self-cultivation should start at the level of meditation or the level of logical progression, you know, rationalism, et cetera. And I think that all of those are actually mistaken, that it has to happen in the body. And I think that we actually see this in the origins of philosophy, that the um, you know, it it's not it's not an accident of history that Socrates was a stonemason and a soldier and that Plato was a championship wrestler mm-hmm. and that they met most likely in the gym. And so the fundamental idea is that if we actually want philosophy to lead to love of and cultivation of wisdom, it actually has to reunify with gymnasium. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that the way that both John and I see it, I, I, you know, obviously I can't speak for him, but my sense is that he sees it fairly similarly is that he went into this, the science, the cognitive science and the philosophy, and he arrived at this idea of an ecology of practices that involves embodiment and movement. And that I came from parkour and, and martial arts and looked for a philosophical way to understand the the processes of transformation that I'm experiencing in myself. Right. And ended up with an ecology of practices that in many ways reflects the principles that he describes. Totally. Um, and so it's been a really incredibly fruitful generative relationship that I'm extraordinarily grateful for. Excellent. Lovely. Um, I think we sort of maybe brought you right up to it, but you moved, I don't know if you would say you moved from parkour to evolve move play, or can you tell me about your evolve move play movement <laughs> as it were? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I suppose you could, one way to say it is that parkour is, is incomplete as a physical culture, okay. right? That if you, if you want to embody the heroic archetype or the, the archetype of the human mover, mm-hmm. Parkour is one dimension mm-hmm. along those lines. And it's a dimension that it, it revealed something deeper than the other expressions of that dimension that were available in our culture. It was, a, mm-hmm. it was a, you know, it was closer to the platonic essence of locomotor capacity mm-hmm. than track and four gymnastics were. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it opens the question, well, how do we relate to the world of things that we can we relate to the world of other physical agents. So I came from a martial arts background, so I wanted to to get that together right away. And I also had grown up on at the end of a dirt road, running and jumping and climbing through the woods. Mm-hmm. And parkour at that time was perceived as purely urban. Mm. And so even in 2006, a year into my parkour training, I had this this sense of like, at the time I conceptualized the heroic arts. Right, gotcha. uh-huh. the heroic arts were acrobatics and strength development. I was very influenced by CrossFit at the time and martial uh-huh. arts parkour. Uh-huh. And so I was I was generating this idea starting in 2006, and then I then encountered uh, the work of um, Georges Hébert, who was uh, a French physical culturalist from the turn of the 20th century, uh-huh. had um, basically observed that hunter forager peoples or traditional peoples or even french farmers mm-hmm. were fitter than many athletes 
hmm. from the upper class just from the demands of their daily life. Hmm. And and he he had been involved in an emergency, like a, a big disaster in, I think it was Martinique. And he saw the people who were able to respond to the disaster. And he developed hmm. this idea that we had to become strong in order to be useful to other citizens. Hmm. We should do so through cultivating these fundamental physical capacities. And so he talked about walking, running, jumping, climbing, moving on all fours, balancing, swimming, lifting, throwing, and self-defense. Those were his 10 categories of movement that everyone should pursue. Hmm. So uh, he developed a very successful school in France that then all the trainers were basically killed in World War II, I think. Hmm. Um, and a lot of it died, but the parcours de combattants, the, hmm. the military obstacle courses we see worldwide, those all originated and like the trees courses that you see, hmm. you know, times the ropes mm -hmm. courses and trees, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. downstream of pepertism. Hmm. And so it had this influence. So in, in Hebert, I found a sort of a reflection of that, that heroic idea that I was already playing with conceptualized in a different way. I couldn't really find any of Hebert's writings in any significant way because they were all in old, difficult French. Mm. But it gave me a starting point to start to iterate these things. Mm -hmm. So I started to work with a French guy who was trying to revive Méthode Naturelle in 2006. His name was Erwin Lacour. And um, that we ended up just not seeing things the same as far as yeah. the way that something should be cultivated. Mm -hmm. And so we split ways. And I decided that like I didn't feel like I had reached a level of mastery in parkour that would allow me to then expand. Mm -hmm. So I decided mm -hmm. to really dig deep into parkour. And I found the first parkour gym on the West Coast, Parkour Visions. And I was the lead instructor there until 2013. And then in 2013, um, for various reasons, I left that organization. And it's, you know, even before leaving, I was trying to build EMP into it, right? I was right. starting martial arts classes, starting strength training classes. But I had conceived the first taking people into nature workshop uh, through EMP, Return to the Source, or Parkour Visions. So Return to the Source are like the, the event that John came to right. last that um that actually was originally conceptualized and put out under parkour visions and then okay. when i left i kept it mm -hmm. put it on it was the first event showcasing the whole method mm -hmm. that i had conceived up to that point um and that was actually before the name evolve move play had even been settled on okay gotcha so then evolve move play was basically just uh I was very inspired by play research by the work of Yuck Pengsep and Stuart mm -hmm. Brown. And I'm well familiar with those characters. Yeah. <laughs> and so I saw parkour as a form of adult play. You know, my wife had just done her 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 degree on that. Mm. And I thought that our whole physical culture was conceived in a sort of industrial fashion that was about forcing people to do more drudgery, more work. Mm. And nobody wanted to do that. Mm. We all had an inherent drive to to engage in physical play that we had all had mm -hmm. as children that was punished out. And so we needed to recover play mm -hmm. um, because we needed to recover movement. And all of this was an expression of our evolved nature. So we evolved to move and we evolved to learn movement primarily through play. Right. And so that was the, the, the sort of key insight behind the, the, or the beginning of the pedagogy. Lovely. Excellent. 
Um, there's a lot to relate to there. Uh, so then you launched uh, EMP. Do you call it that? I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that organization? What you got? What's involved there? Yeah. So it's still a small org. We mm -hmm. uh, we've been around, I guess, for just over uh, for a decade now. And originally, it was just me teaching this one uh, originally three day workshop a year that was residential. That mm -hmm. then became five days, and now is eight days. Okay. Um, and then I was traveling around teaching two day workshops. Mm. Um, so I did that through 2019, and then. By that time, when my wife gave birth to our third child, it was like leaving her at home mm. with two kids was hard. With three kids was not conceivable. Right. right? Three under five. Uh, um, we did that. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, it's, it's intense. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, and then I could, and at that point, it was clear that I was making the majority of the money that the business made in a year as far as margin on this one event, the retreat. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, we're going to, we're going to just focus on the retreat. So we started moving towards teaching three retreats a year, we started building an online program set. So we have, we have four online programs available, and then we have these three retreats a year that we teach. And we've just actually bought back uh, our our two-day workshops that are now being taught by some of my students. Okay. So that's All that's right. the work. Lovely. And where are you in terms of sort of like, uh, how would you, do you feel like your philosophy is evolving itself as you feel like your philosophy is fairly well shaped? Um, tell me a little bit about kind of where you are. Are you still looking uh, for things? Do you feel like John and, and Jordan's frame of reference ground you or other frames of reference ground you in a fairly um, kind of complete, not complete, but you know, a, a, you feel secure in that or is that still an area of growth and exploration? Yes. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. <laughs> both, right. Like I feel like, um, I suppose I thought of ever since sort of like windows 95, ah. like we've reached the point where like the fundamental structures are there, mm -hmm. but we're always going to continue to iterate. And, um, so I feel very secure in like the overall shape of it, this idea of the five fundamental relationships that we're trying to approach, uh, tuning to them, the idea. And this was one something, you know, so like um, up to last year, we're talking about like four fundamental uh, fundamental practices within ecology of practice. So those would be movement practices, mindfulness practices, nature connection practices, and community practices, mm. um, which I think is a good conceptualization. But I think mm -hmm. when we think, think of it as these five fundamental relationships to reality, Mm. even more strongly and the really radical claim within involvement play is that the movement level is actually the first level across all of them right could you remind us of those five again you talked you spoke yeah. to them before but just yeah the, the five fundamental uh connections that are relationships that we are oriented towards in being are those that are internal to the self mm -hmm. and the self in relationship to the outside world as a landscape mm -hmm. self in relationship to the outside world as a uh, a set of objects that can be manipulated, mm -hmm. self in relationship to other agents, and the self in relationship to transcendent forces. Mm -hmm. We have to be, wisdom in some sense is moving towards greater attunement, mm -hmm. appropriate attunement along all, all the levels. Mm -hmm. um, and the the radical claim, I think, within what we do is that, so if you think of, I would say that meditation and uh, like um, joint integrity work mm -hmm. are both expressions of the internal relationships of the self. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, 
And our claim is that we actually have to start at the level of the somatic and structural before mm. we can get into the meditative effectively. And that when we don't, it can actually be quite disorienting for people. Mm. But if they don't have good embodiment, that mm -hmm. like Vipassana can actually take them to a place that is not healthy. Mm. Um, and then when it comes to, you know, the expression, the, the relationship to the world as a landscape, that's parkour, mm -hmm. right? Lovely. And relationship to the objects that's, uh, you know, playing with balls and sticks and ropes, basically. Mm -hmm. And both of those are fundamental to something like a nature connection practice where you're learning to make fire and track and, mm. you know, gathering and all those things. Mm -hmm. And then the, 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 the agent to agent mm -hmm. level that level uh is rough and tumble play hmm. that's the base and then dialogical practices are actually the the abstracted mm. expression of that. and we think this is this is key to the the origin of philosophy that mm -hmm. plato and and socrates are getting together and wrestling mm. and the stoics say that the philosophy is wrestling in the mind Mm -hmm. you know, when I spoke to Jordan on his podcast, I said, you know, your, your next book is called We Who Wrestle with God. Mm. You embody the capacity to wrestle with God if you don't wrestle, if you've mm. never experienced what it is to truly wrestle. Mm -hmm. um, and then physical ritual, we think, is the first way in which we are really beginning to conceptualize and be in relationship to transcendent forces. Right. And so all of it for us starts in at the level of the embodied, the incarnated. Okay. And we're not looking to ascend outside of the body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're looking to, to relate more deeply to all of the experiences of the body-mind in relationship to being. Good. Lovely. All right. Well, I can resonate with a lot of that. Not necessarily in my actual embodiment as an over-intellectualized yeah. academic, but yeah. nonetheless, at the level of the conclusions that I reached <laughs> as a function of my analyses. Um, but that sounds beautiful, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. I don't know what the, okay. where should we go from there? Well, I mean, there's lots of different possibilities. I don't know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, so one possibility is syncing up a little bit with you talk. I could certainly offer... Um, yeah. how you talk kind of would hear your insights as it were, yeah. uh, and contextualize them. Uh, you talk has synced up very deeply with John's insights, um, mm -hmm. in a, in a way so that I would actually now see them as fundamentally synergistic perspectives. Um, yeah. and I think that we are, we're looking, uh, John and I and everybody sort of, I think we're really looking for a transformation in our worldview. And I think we're on the cusp of that, um, <laughs> Uh, so, so I'll a few. I'll give you. I'll throw out a few things that just really speak profoundly. Uh, to so, um, so John has his four P's. Okay, yep. obviously. Um, well, you talk has your primate person distinction. Okay. okay? Uh, so three of the P's are your primate. So that's your perspectival, procedural, and participatory. You're an embedded, embodied primate. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk actually calls that the dimension of mindedness. You're a minded animal. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, that's essentially equivalent of the 4E cognition move. So 4E cognition, I don't come from, I mean, I'm a psychologist and a scholar, so I read it, but I come from my own tradition. Um, and basically what you talk helped me realize is, oh my God, this, this thing called mind needs to be placed, okay, at the sensory motor loop of an animal that can get up and move around. Yep. Okay? 
Um, and actually the core of the nervous system in Utah is called is framed by what's called behavioral investment theory. Okay. Mm -hmm. So behavioral investment theory basically says the nervous system is a regulating in work effort investing system on a mm -hmm. sensory motor loop. That's, that's yep. the essence of it. Okay. So if you're going to, if you're going to build it, <laughs> build it on its essence. Mm. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, so, so you have a, you have a skin that it does an exterior system detection. You have a gut that does an interior systems detection. You have a motor system that does a proprioception, and then that's a regulatory control system. And mindedness emerges from that regulatory control system, and then it becomes abstracted with imaginal models. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the novel system of of modern life that we built. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just extracts the proposition, and we and John will rail against this and argue that okay, we can do deductive method in the propositional sense, but fail our primate embodied miss completely, um, and and that's a disaster. <laughs> and we did, and we are, and and I think that the mental health crisis, uh, I think that an enormous number of elements are a disconnected, and now not only disconnected but unbelievably chaotically confused propositional system of justification. That's Utah's term for our networks of propositional understanding what are our systems that legitimize and then what are they embedded and embodied in our minded animal systems and both of those systems so we extracted and elevated us we weren't animals we were this either through religion and or then through abstraction and reason and technology and then we disconnect off of nature and then we explode into an unbelievable chaotic fragmented postmodern insanity um, in relationship to everything is meaningless or relative or whatever. And you just have to situate yourself in an imminent meaningless context. That's just across an infinite plural. No, and that's, that's you know, that's exciting for a propositional structure. And now, and also then our entire socialization system has been disconnected um, from our, you know, from the fundamental ground of our perspectival participatory procedural primate. Uh, and we actually have to situate the healthy mindedness grows in that agent arena relationship. That's where it grows. Um, and that's so as I listen to you, I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> that, that sounds about right. <laughs> have you read um, The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram? I have not. Mm -mm. It's a really beautiful little book. It's a it's an exploration of phenomenological thought. Okay. So mm -hmm. specifically by Merleau Ponty. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Uh, I do know Marlo Ponte quite well. Mm -hmm. He makes an argument basically that we, you know, it's an argument that we have to go back to, uh, to the premacy of our sensed experience of the world. <laughs> What's interesting about the book is that it starts fairly technical around the mm -hmm. philosophy and it's fairly parsable as a technical argument. But right away, he starts to use much more evocative language because he's actually, he's actually exemplifying what he's talking about mm. right he's exemplifying the fact that we have to call ourselves forth into the world mm -hmm. in the language that we use and he argues that um his one of his big arguments is that over time we've actually lost the sensory information and in language in all the way back to the beginning of alphabetic mm -hmm. uh language right mm. um so the the letter A is uh, is the ox in its original Semitic script, right? Mm. It actually represents an animal. But once it's borrowed into Greek, it's mm -hmm. inverted, and the actual 
sensed experience of the world that it represented is lost. Yep. And so there's layer after layer from hieroglyphics to uh, to to the alphabet to the printing press to the to the ability to um, to read without speaking while you read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we've slowly been able to abstract out an intellectual world uh-huh. that's increasingly not dependent on our sensed experience of the world. And, um, and you know, so in, in my work, I talk a lot about the idea that, you know, that the Cartesian idea that we, that, that what we are is fundamentally a mind uh-huh. is the, is the, is the fundamental mistake that underlies just about everything in our culture. Right. Yeah. And it goes back to nominalism before Descartes. Descartes not uh-huh. unique in, 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 in his, and in, in even, you know, the, the idea of the, of the self as trapped within the physical frame. We find that in Buddhism. We find that in Vedanta. Mm-hmm. We find that in, in various Gnostic traditions throughout, uh, you know, the religious history of, of the Middle East. And, um, but, but obviously for us, the Cartesian framework is the most, mm-hmm. the most generative of that worldview. Totally. We're, we're, not you know I, I haven't read all I haven't read Descartes deeply in the way I'm sure you have right like I'm I'm picking these things up from from John. No, well I mean you're you're 100. I mean John and I spent a lot of time in our first series together on untangling the world not a consciousness, um, yeah. and and specifying why Descartes did what he did. I mean he's certainly a bright guy, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but fundamentally, I you talk labels this the Enlightenment gap, okay? And basically what it says is as science emerged. Um, and we emerged into the, a modern era. We we lost capacity uh, to ontologically grip the world in terms of specifying mind relative to matter, um, and we lost epistemological mm-hmm. coherence between the science epistemology and the knowledge it generated, and the subjective and social knowledge systems that were pragmatic in the world. Um, and so we basically then were given then uh, what we found was an epistemologically grounded view of materialism. Um, and it does all right at that for sure. Um, and then that's it, basically. There, there's a tremendously profound limitation uh, because of a bunch of errors that, and, and, and ignorances that people had. Uh, and I think that John and I in this new era and Ian McGilchrist and others are, oh, well, actually, we didn't have the necessary knowledge uh, from a Utah perspective, go from material objects. And by the way, they come from energy information underneath that they didn't realize. And then out of that is living organisms and out of that are minded animals. We can, Descartes gets the mind very wrongly placed in the world. Um, and then it's, you're a cultured person, Rene, <laughs> you know, and then you're a justifying Frenchman uh, who has a hyper abstract across the propositional formal layer, which is interesting, uh, but nonetheless to achieve formality relative to the reality of the material world, relative to the ideations that we embody as organisms, animals, and persons, we didn't know how to track that uh, complexified evolution in the past, and now we can. Uh, we can use the maps from Utah. We can use recursive relevance realization across the stack. We can see the failures uh, of the old paradigm, and hopefully we can uh, rewrite a more complete uh, worldview understanding that allows us to wake up our educational systems and start. My mom, by the way, is a kindergarten uh, uh, very retired now kindergarten teacher. Um, but you know, their whole point was play, play, yep. play, you know, stop this, you know, they're five years old. You do whatever you can to engage in a diversified play structure, you know, in a, in a socially safe, but 
pressing environment uh, on, a, on an order chaos kind of dynamic where people care, but actually get pressed and then they have to resolve and then do all this other stuff. And now she actually, um, you know, like her last year, found herself almost weeping going into the classroom, watching just prescribed worksheet after prescribed worksheet and completely constrained educational environment um, that, you know, and then of course there's a COVID explosion. And I mean, it just is tragic, you know, about the evolution of our uh, uh, misguided notions about how to um, manage. Um, hopefully we can maybe in the next generation get that right. But anyway, those are uh, some reflections. No, it's it's something that I've been, well, there's multiple things you said there, but picking up on the play thing, uh, something that I've been thinking about since, you know, I don't know, 2010 or something is this, this, this fundamental reality that play and you know as a kid who is adhd and who is homeschooled like i have a very different sensed experience of this um play is the way a young animal goes about self-education mm -hmm. we have inherent drives to play that are related to our species specific skills right so cats like to stalk and pounce and bite and claw things because cats catch their prey that way Dogs also like to stalk things, but they run much more in their play because they're pursuit predators. So, you know, and horses like to run around a lot and kick their heels up because, you know, that's how they defend themselves from predators. Mm -hmm. And so in our play, we reflect an evolutionary history. So when, when we, when we tell kids no tag, no wrestling, no contact games, no climbing. When we design their playground equipment to, to prevent them from doing the types of things that human beings normally do, right? Mm -hmm. we are We're actually denying them access to their own nature. Okay. And if we recognize that cognitive processes are not separate from the other systems of the body, mm -hmm. we're actually undercutting their ability to... Uh, to fit themselves to the world well, to be actually able to solve tasks. This is a point uh, you're probably familiar with Stuart Brown making, which is that um, if you if you if you train engineers and they don't have a childhood background of taking things apart and putting them back together with their hands, they can they can test extremely well, but they're very bad at actual novel problem solving. Mm -hmm. So what are we doing? We have an education system that is pushing us as much as possible towards the types of engineers who can solve things on paper and can't solve things in reality. Oh. Yeah, at multiple wow. levels, at multiple yeah. levels, you know, uh, the, and you made a point before about the nature of safety uh, or, and fear and befriending mm -hmm. fear um, and, and the, what it is to become robust. So as a, as a clinical psychologist, one of the great tragedies I see in my field is, which is very understandable in my field as a clinician, you see people wounded and abused and, and you want to try to create a safe environment and you want to honor the subjective traumas that people experience. Um, but if that, uh, and it does tend to be a maternal caretaking structure isn't counterbalanced, um, all you basically do is you, you, the orientation is, well, how do we make the environment safer? And then we have a legalistic structure and we have a, an intense identification of any type of unusual 
risk, like somebody gets abducted, you know, and then everybody knows about it because it's on your thing, right? So yeah. our perception of what fear is, our perception of what danger is, our perception of how to try to control the environment and eliminate risk and care for individuals has gotten so lopsided in relationship to the failure to recognize that if you realize that the way to create unbelievably neurotic people is to tell them that they're wounded and to be wary and then to say the environment, the authority needs to come and protect you from this environment so you don't have to confront the jump, okay? Yeah. Then then, the, then you get reinforced by the fear gets taken away and put in a corner, but you're then you're constantly waiting for the fear to come back and you're constantly asking people to move it, move it further or further away. And then you live in a state of massive anxiety, which of course is uh, what we are seeing in relationship to our generation in a way that's just you know, devastating for somebody like me to watch unfold because it's not that complicated um, the, the, uh, the way people work. And I appreciate people wanting to protect people, but oh my God, do you realize the damage that you end up doing with that good intention? Yeah, absolutely. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Hyde. I'd really love to speak with him at some point about, you know, this this embodied layer, right? Because he's he's dial he's dialing in the the prescription of the, what the problem is right now so well. But I think that we can go a lot further into describing the solution. Oh, but you talked about the great untruth that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, mm-hmm. and the great untruth that you know if you feel hurt you are hurt or you're if you you know if you uh, i'm I'm trying to remember but basically the idea is that what we've been told now is that your your emotional response to something is the truth of what happened and this is a disaster it's a disaster it's absolutely a disaster there's a proper way to hold there's a proper way to frame right relation to self right relation to other right relation to the environment right relation to virtue um and we have completely lost it and just gone to the lowest common denominator and essentially handed microphones to histrionic um structure and it's dangerous i have this model where I, I thought about, I think someone asked me many years ago, like, how do you know someone's a good coach? Like, how would you select a coach? And I said, well, I thought about it for a while. And I thought, well, the fundamental thing about a, a teacher is that they have to care about the student's progression. It really fundamentally comes down to you have to love your students so that you want to see their growth. And then you have to have... Um, the knowledge that's going to allow them to grow. And then you have to have the persuasive capacity or capacity to discipline them in such a way that that knowledge will actually create change. So you can care very deeply, but if you don't have knowledge to share, it won't necessarily create much change. You can care very deeply and have immense knowledge. And if you don't know how to communicate in a way that the person can absorb, then it's not gonna create change. So I was thinking about this then later as I was like thinking about how, you know, how to, how to balance my own journey. Cause what I had done repeatedly was like become so disciplined and intense in my training that I would become, uh, that I would injure myself, that I would overtrain myself, that I would fall apart. And then I would reciprocally sort of go out the other side and say, Hey, I need, I clearly I'm, I'm going too far with discipline. So I need to have some kind of, of self-care, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then my self-care would kind of collapse into eating ice cream, right? Mm. <laughs> Watching a, a TV. And so, so I started to think what I, what I want to be is I want to be optimally balanced between self-care and self-discipline. Right. And, but then I realized that 
that that there's another dimension, right? Mm-hmm. It's not actually just about being between these two things. It's that uh, discipline has a shadow side, which is abuse. Uh-huh. So you might get up and make yourself run in the morning because you have a clear goal and it's actually fulfilling mm-hmm. those goals. Or you might get yourself to run in the morning because it hurts and you hate yourself right. and the pain helps you process your hatred of yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side, self-care can mean like going and taking a nap because that's what your body most needs or it can mean scrolling through Instagram for hours because mm-hmm. it's stimulating, right? Mm-hmm. And so I can think of that as self-indulgence. Yep. So what we need is care, uh-huh. balanced with discipline, uh-huh. and recognizing the sh- shadows of abuse and indulgence Love and moves us towards that. And the way that I've conceptualized is that these are feminine and masculine poles, not male and female, because uh-huh. everybody contains both of these things. And and this is something that like you know Jordan Peterson talked a lot about the role of the father is to bring courage into the or the role of the masculine in parenting is to bring mm-hmm. courage into the child. Mm-hmm. Children need nurturance and they need encouragement, mm-hmm. and they and that is played out in a in a sexed way, right? Mm-hmm. Like my my kids, if my kid falls down, one of my kids falls down and bruises their knee, and I'm standing there and their mom is standing there. Mm-hmm always go to mom first. In mm-hmm. fact, they'll become angry with me if I try to pick them up. Mm. <laughs> like She's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, when they want to be thrown in the air, mm-hmm. they come to me. Mm-hmm. When discipline needs to be enforced, my presence makes that m- far easier. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're, what I think of that is that we are trying to, that, that as a culture, what it feels like to me is that we, that we, maybe we had a, an excess of masculine discipline that moved yep. towards abuse mm-hmm. that has then been seen as so toxic that it's been completely suppressed totally. and given rise to a culture of extreme feminine uh, indulgence mm-hmm. that weirdly creates this need for a tyrannical discipline because it's the only way that things can be organized. <laughs> right. So my kids tell me all the time, like the kids who hit people can't be taken out. Mm-hmm. They can't be they, their, their behavior is unchangeable mm-hmm. because none of the disciplinary measures are, um, are effective on them. Mm-hmm. So the schools have been hamstrung from having any disciplinary measures that can actually change the behavior of an antisocial child. Mm-hmm. But the kids, like my kids, don't feel like they can defend themselves because they're actually inhibited by mm-hmm. the threat of authority. Mm-hmm. And so we see this, this toxic cycle where people who are willing to flout authority, the authority actually doesn't have anything to stop that, but people who are sensitive to social signals mm-hmm. shut themselves down in relationship to and cannot engage in pro-social punishment of mm-hmm. of people who are uh, are are acting abusively. Need to be reined in with authority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, so in fact, uh, yeah, yeah, that's this. I mean, this is in in uh, you talk. There's a thing called the influence matrix, and it maps your primate heart, 
And yeah. what it says is you track your relational value and social influence, but you do it on low dimensions of power or dominant submission, love, which is affiliation, hostility, and freedom. And fundamentally, what we're doing is it's a, these are like knobs on a wheel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so you need uh, those in constructive opponent process. There's a mm-hmm. to got to maintain uh, the it's like a virtue dynamic. You have excess on either side, uh, and we need this. And you, I really love the way you uh, identified the shadow of each um, uh, the of the yin yang. If you want to use a, an even more sort of generic but uh, component uh, constructive opponent process signal, that's essentially. Um, so that's uh, absolutely. I just I really like that those three dials. So I want you to just repeat them for me if you don't mind. So the first, so the second sure. dial. Well, the, let's get to the core. The, the core of the relational heart. Okay, is it, do I have social influence? That means can I move others in accordance to my interests? That's one core aspect. And the second is, am I seen, known, and valued by important others? Okay, okay so we so have the, influence and love. So influence and relational value. I'm going to use relational value there because I use love in a slightly different term, but that's fine. Um, then there are process dimensions like of self relative to other. Okay. Mm-hmm. The vertical dimension, okay, is the power, like who has power over other. And uh, that's archetypally dominant versus submissive. Okay. Dominant submission. Dominance and submission of the roles on power. And then there's the love dimension, uh, which is affiliation. Hey, we'll join together and share mm-hmm. in our interests. Uh, and then the converse of that is hostility, which is we're split our interests apart and destructively work. Okay. Yeah. And then we're on autonomy versus dependency, which is how involved are we versus mm-hmm. how separate. And so mm-hmm. we are constant. And then that gives rise to power, love, and freedom. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you can look at the political spectrum and see these things as the dem- democratic impulse is a feminine impulse to care for equality, fairness, affiliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the traditional conservative impulse is a controlling impulse. If you go to Jonathan Haidt, there's a traditional controlling impulse of the father. And then there's the libertarian impulse, which is the independent autonomous impulse. Okay, yep. And you can actually see each of these are dialing these things. And the proper political governance structure, cybernetic governance structure, ideally would be right component, opponent, a constructive opponent process relationship between power, love, and freedom to maximize mutual relational value and social influence. And you articulated very clearly how we ha- used to have a pretty dominant authoritarian kind of structure that was over excessive on abuse and don't be a pansy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden therapy comes along. It's like, oh my God, all these people are injured and brutalized. And then we're like, oh, well, everyone needs to be taken care of and we, everyone needs to be protected and they swing. And then now we're trying to find our way, grope our way around uh, without much guidance. But it's sadly, if, if we understood how to appreciate dialectical opponent process towards the goal of mutual relational value, it's the the, the processes kind of like how you run a good parkour. The processes are pretty clear if you know how to see it. Yeah. I- love that idea of those reciprocal processes and you know like that was a big thing that i got from peterson i came i, I came you know growing up in the the counterculture right we were on the left for sure mm-hmm. you know i i i went to university in bellingham washington that's as left coast as you can get mm-hmm. right lived in mm-hmm. seattle so i was very very left wing and then there were certain things that were just not satisfying about i i just felt like there were certain aspects of reality that people weren't really willing to talk about, which is essentially, I think that the left doesn't want to confront the fact that human beings have a nature. Mm-hmm. It's current left wing thought is, is, is intrinsically blank slate. Mm-hmm. And that I, I couldn't do that. Like I, I read Steven Pinker's the blank slate right after I left university 
and I recognized that I that the tragic vision was much more aligned with how I saw reality. Mm-hmm. But it took a while to kind of like transfer to like, okay, I really can't be aligned with with this mm-hmm. side anymore. And then I went all the way to the alt right, right, all the mm-hmm. way to, you know, do we need ethnically homogenous states, right? Do mm-hmm. we need mm-hmm. traditional roles right. where where women are subservient to men? And I never completely. Um, I guess didn't buy into it completely, but mm-hmm. I was highly influenced by it. And I was mm-hmm. like leaning in that direction. And then I found Jordan Peterson. And when he sort of laid out uh, the reality that you, you, the tradition and progression have to be a dynamic balance mm-hmm. that we're always facing novel problems. Mm-hmm. And so we need new solutions <laughs> And at the same time, we're always facing perennial problems. So we need to respect the traditions that have bulwarked us against those perennial problems. Order and chaos. Order. Thread the thread the Order. line between the forces. Um <laughs> and, and and then at the same time, he made a really strong case for how the conservative can become tyrannical and dangerous. Right. And you started like well, I remember having a conversation with a with a uh, with a friend of mine who was a, like a very intense environmentalist, like apocalyptical environmentalist. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Well, the Earth can really only have about five hundred million human beings," hmm. you know. And I was like, "Okay, well, who do you want to start killing? Mm-hmm. Right? Should we start with the gays? Should we start with the Jews? Right? <laughs> like, you know, what's what's the what's the actual endpoint of this philosophical position that you've taken?" And so then I came to this this idea that like. Um, if you if you ended up in a political philosophy whose only possible implementation involves atrocity, then you need to try I'm, another one. Right. I think I think that's a that's not a, the valued end state. There is, is raises serious questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Um, so so I love that idea that there's so you have um, you. We, the, so the, the, just like this, for a second, the, the dominant submission thing, we don't believe in some sense, it feels like we don't believe that there are legitimate sources of authority anymore. Well, right. That's uh, So the postmodern critique uh, finds its really primary justificatory grip in dismantling authority. That, that, that ultimately, there is no ground to stand on. And then there's legitimizing. It's a critique of power, uh, you know, and then the fundamental thing is you can't, and then it's an attempt to then redistribute power fundamentally. So there is certainly justification towards power. It's just inverted relative to sociocultural history. So you have to, everything has to be inverted. The only thing that, that I don't know no, why that's justified in a non completely non justifiable context that many postmodern relatives find themselves in, but that is what manifests ultimately for sure. Yeah, it's just like a, this feels like something Jonathan Peugeot would say. Like inversion is the only justification for power right. within that right. thing, within that, that within that, that frame. Mm-hmm. But it's so strange to me because there's this, there's like I, like as I became a teacher, right, and people were looking to me as an authority. People were looking to me as an authority at in um in community, right, as a mm-hmm. leader of community. Like there was this real discomfort. And I saw in a lot of people who became leaders in the early days of, of parkour, like there was this real discomfort with stepping into that role. Mm-hmm. And then in myself over time, what I've 
recognize this. A lot of that discomfort came from seeing how a spiritual authority in particular had been abused within the counterculture mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but ultimately you, you, you have to take asymmetric relationships to, to be able to propagate ideas, right. That are good. And so you, you have to be willing to be someone's follower to learn and you have to be willing to be a teacher in order to help other people learn which is asymmetric right and so you need teacherly authority um so that dominant submission thing it, it it's very strange to me because it's like nobody in some sense wants to admit they're a leader right or take on the burden of teacherly authority and yet somehow we end up with this hyper totalitarian system right because yeah, of vacuum so you know that's why you talk. We're primates. We're not. We're primates. So yeah. if we do primatology, that's us. That's yeah. not like another set of animals. Like we're primates. Okay. And then do primatology across all of us. Now we're right. now we are unique. We're unique primates in the way that the massive amount of flexibility that we have in our dominant submissive relationships is wonderful. Um, and and that fluidity is very powerful, and it affords us a lot if we do it right. But every coordinated human action is going to have social influence differentials okay yes. and and very appropriately so i mean just you know you know try to do try to run a company where everybody is 100 percent equal doing everything the same way i mean it's just it's an insane um you have no way to operate in relation to have a parent and a child have the same amount of power that's ridiculous uh, power in and of itself is and that's why you, when you see the influence right. make sure you realize oh my god we need power we need love we need freedom in the service of mutual social influence mutual relational value we want to maximize those are the things that we want to try to maximize um and then that is actually a backbone that we all seek uh and then the question is how do you manifest that in a way that is you know uh virtuous fair just uh sort of you know grounded in a kind of first ethical moral structure and that's you know you talks oriented in that way yeah, so we we've we've thought a lot about that within evolving the play, specifically around what does it mean to be in that authoritarian role, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, there was a certain point when our work had kind of evolved to a philosophical level, where people started telling me they thought that I was a spiritual teacher, and mm-hmm. I was initially like, oh, please don't put that on me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the spiritual uh, spiritual teachers that I experienced growing up were trying to take advantage of their spiritual authority to get in people's pants. And I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And, uh, but what I started to see was that there's a certain point at which you're actually failing to, uh, you're failing to live up to the need of the student. If you're mm-hmm. unwilling to take authority, there's a, there's a kind of like within a group, Mm-hmm. Setting, like one of our events there's like a need for a king at a certain point you have mm-hmm. to there has to be an archetypal king and it, it may be your role to step into that mm-hmm. role of the archetypal king so part of that is you have to cultivate virtue so that you're not going to abuse the role of the king so what we've done is try to be really clear about this sort of like symbolically entering and exiting it and then mm-hmm. having multiple people who get to carry authority so that it doesn't get so we don't get this sort of like that's we have to reflect this one. Right. Then we get, if you get a justification attached to it and that then becomes rigid and legitimizing, then that is both unfair and deeply problematic and unnecessarily rigid for us, our natures as primates. Um, because if you just pay attention, um, kids, parents, wives, and husbands, they will shift 
their dominant and submissive role. And we're unbelievably flexible uh, role takers. That's one of our uh, unique primate capacities. We just need to cultivate it and recognize the complex adaptive dynamic systems that can enable recursive relevance realization towards valued states of being. Yeah, absolutely. And so then the, the other one that really popped out for me in, in what you're saying was this idea of uh, affiliation and hostility. And so one of the like, I think really destructive constraints that we're putting on children that my daughter is really feeling pushed on is that there, that there's a sort of requirement for equal affiliation across every potential dyad within mm -hmm. a educational cohort. Mm -hmm. And, and when you have kids who act out the, the natural hostility of other children towards them is is actually what's being pre predominantly punished by the authority, mm -hmm. which feels mm -hmm. extremely unjust to the children. Deeply problematic. Deeply problematic. I mean, the, the, the again, uh, the, I'll just say this: the, the 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 educational system is completely flying blind relative to our primate natures. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so, 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 so that's, well, I mean, an entire system is, is probably in some sense the worst because that's, it's so foundational to everything else, but like, it feels like so many conversations are just completely blind to the fact that we, we have an evolved nature at all. And it, it results in just increasingly incomprehensible. It, it results in madness. It's complete madness. Yeah. Right. This is all part of the meaning crisis. And, and you talk as you're a primate, you're a primate. Your primate and a person, uh, and those, and and it is the process by which we need to harmonize those realities. That's central. Yeah, and that, that's that's been the central idea of evolutive play as well, right? We mm -hmm. we human beings have a nature, mm -hmm. right? Amen. Um, there's a there's a book called Reshaping Physical Education by Margaret Stryker. So over the course of the last retreat, I read uh, passages from that book, from Spell of the Centuries, and from Maps of Meaning mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. kind of map out an argument about how we have to recover the idea of the human being as an expression of nature mm -hmm. rather than a type of biological machine. Mm -hmm. um, and in the beginning of that book, she says, uh, she says, um, physical education can best be conceived as a, as applied biology. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, therefore um, it's not surprising that the same currents can be seen in both. Mm -hmm. The uh, in the last half of the last century, um, there was an immoderate relationship to uh, to nature, driven by the fathoming of several, uh, several up to then, in, you know, unable to be understood natural laws, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which gave rise to an idea of man's dominion over nature, mm -hmm. and the unacceptable aspects of many forms of gymnastics, the forcing of the body to respond in mm -hmm. certain ways and the lack of respect for the body's inherent systems arise mm -hmm. entirely from this period of the idea mm -hmm. of you know for nature nice okay and we need to uh and now she was saying at the time that mm -hmm. that, the, that we now understand that the human being has to be conceived as an expression of nature and that its laws have to be respected in the cultivation of it. And from such an attitude, a very different relationship to gymnastics will be, uh, will arise. And, and she says that when we understand the human being as an expression of nature, that physical education uh -huh. is the basis of all education. Amen. Uh, amen. Uh, that maybe we can bring that. I think that's a very nice 
spot because that actually lands exactly where Utah lands in the sense that it is it is our organismic nature first. We are organisms. Nobody denies we're organisms. We shouldn't deny we're animals, mm-hmm. which starts with movement, uh, movement in the sensory motor looping function. The embodied mindedness um, is is the environment in which we grow, even as we try to abstract it. That's a horrible error. We're getting a mass amount of complexity. How do we get grounded back into the world? Well, let's recognize that we evolve. Let's move and play. Uh, and and I see you as uh, as do, as shining the light on that in a very profound and beautiful way. So, Thank you. I really appreciate that. That's what we're trying to do is remind people, you know, what I th- what's really interesting about reading Stryker is that was written in the 1920s, and you know that's she's just a little bit after Hebert, right? Mm-hmm. And so that you can see that these ideas are generating and you can see the the kind of nature boys that are happening in uh, Germany around the same time, or just before uh, Rudolf Steiner is happening around the same time. Right. And so there's this real sort of dawning of an idea that there is complexity and that we can't solve it through reductionistic materialism, mm-hmm. and that human beings are not machines. And I think that, uh, World War One and then World War Two, they there was such an expression of machine civilization mm-hmm. that they that they destroyed that like literally Hebert's school they just all died right. <laughs> other than him and a couple others, um, and and so it was lost and and we went like I think all the way, I think the eighties are like the apogee of of the most disembodied form of physical culture right. Mm. There was the idea of aerobics. The only thing you needed for health was aerobic function. So you could just do aerobics. And then the idea of isolation bodybuilding, right? As the Mm. aesthetics. The way that I think about it is that when we divorce the mind from the body, we view the body like a car that we drive around. Mm -hmm. We walk around in a meat robot. Mm -hmm. There's two relationships to your meat robot. Mm -hmm. Like ultimately if the self is not in the meat robot at all the meat robot's kind of a distraction you should be self-cultivating and not being too worried about your meat robot to the degree that you worry about it you should be oriented towards making it healthy so that you can do thinking and that's what you see i think that's the that's the current academic culture towards physical physicality lots of high-powered professors who run and then it's the lower class that goes to no, if I'm going to have a meat robot, I want to have the best meat robot. Mm. <laughs> I want to have a Lamborghini mm-hmm. I want or 550 with, you know, raised up and giant t- tires. And right. that's what bodybuilding gets you. Yeah. Huh. But I think we're seeing it now. Once again, like we're, ru- we're running into such problems with the fact that like, we just can't progress in our thinking about fundamental problems through further reductionism. Yeah, totally. Have to start thinking at ecological levels. Amen. I think that's that's starting to rise up through something like parkour in this really weird organic way. Mm-hmm. It's meeting the science that's coming down. Totally. Science. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I love our meeting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm glad that you're so glad you connected with John uh, and bring in your vision. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. There's a lot of areas which we could continue. Thank you so much for Sure. Uh, uh, sharing this vision and we'll look forward to future respond connections and other kinds of uh, conversations going forward. Thanks so Sounds much, Rick. Really appreciate it.